98% of the views on YouTube come from influencers, from YouTubers. And that dwarfs all the streaming platforms from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu to all linear television and all of TV combined. All that combined is a small fraction of what YouTube is. And that's not including the crazy amounts of growth that's happening with TikTok, what's happening on Instagram, what's happening on Twitch.tv, and, and then all the different platforms that are starting to come to the West from the East. Guess how much is being spent in 2020 uh, on media? $695 billion. Influencers are much bigger than all of traditional media, TV, and all the streaming platforms combined. Influencer is only getting $10 billion in 2020. And so there's going to be a huge shift of resources and of budgets. So when those budgets shift, there will be the biggest net to catch all the fish. Hello, and welcome to More Intelligent Tomorrow, a wide-ranging exploration of the potential impact of AI on the world around us, as envisioned by the future heroes of the human and machine intelligence revolution. Can AI predict our attention? We'll discuss this and more with Ricky Ray Butler on today's episode. And now, your host, Ben Taylor. Ricky Butler, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, don't, um, I'd like to cut. Um, <laughs> oh you gosh. need to call me Ricky Ray Butler. Okay, we're going to keep Ricky going. Or Ricky Ray. Ricky Ray Butler, thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> hey, is there no intro here? That, no, hey, I, I'm not going to read I, I some bio. That's the point of the podcast. I'm not okay, going to read okay, some okay. bio. Let's start over. Ricky Ray Butler, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm so pumped to be here. It's been, we've been wanting to do this for a long time. Well, I'm I'm really excited to have you on because you have a very unique lens and perspective with your experience with influencers and that story. So I'd love to jump all the way back to the Plaid days. Was that the name of your first company? What? Yeah, it, it was It was called um, Plaid Social Labs. And, and is it true that when you were starting out, it was actually difficult to convince companies that some zip-faced teenager should talk about them? Is that true? <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing. When we first started out, I, I remember um, just noticing the first, for the first time all these YouTubers. And, and this is where a lot of these you know, content creators and influencers were. You know, they were first YouTubers, and they all had very raw content. It was very unprofessional and unorthodox to when people were creating you know, video. And I was just thinking, wow, what would happen – if, if we were to, you know, start working with a lot of these different um, YouTubers and, and, and get them to talk about a product. And as we started testing that, um, we ended up like crashing websites or spending like $1,500 on a creator and making $40,000. And it, 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 was, it was amazing. And so we thought we'd just crack this nut and we found this gold mine and we then go to agencies or different big brands and we would literally get laughed out of rooms because they'd be saying, well, look, um, this is really crappy content. Uh, we don't want to be affiliated with this. It's, it's way too raw and organic. And, you know, we tried to explain that, you know, the data-driven approach is to go, you know, where the viewers are and that this was exploding. And it was, it was a tough hill to climb at the very beginning. And did you notice early on that brands wanted to have too much influence over the content where they wanted to improve the rawness or get their creative people involved? What, what was that like with creators? 
100%. I mean, that was something that was really difficult for creative agencies or brands to collaborate with creators is because they'd come to the situation and say, okay, we definitely want to you know, do something with you and, and your channel, but you need to follow the script or you need to make sure you do X, Y, and Z. And so really early on in our business, we came up with a formula and a process um, um, that is a data-driven process that we call the consensus triangle. And so basically how this works is you do not follow the traditional method in creating content or a video. What you do is you tell the brand you know, to come to the table with a vision and with their talking points and their objectives. And then from there, you give the creative hat to the influencer or the content creator and say, these are my objectives. This is what I want to accomplish. Please come up with a solution. And then the, the content creator comes up with a solution. They have built an audience for a reason, and they usually have done that through communication, and they know how to best position a brand to their audience better than anyone else. And so what we found is when the brand and the content creator reach a consensus, something amazing happens. The audience is happy. The audience is happy that the brand has empowered the content or empowered the video rather than distracted from it or uh, made it so it was inconsistent to the other programming. And, and as a result of that, when we saw that our clients and brands had started to follow this process, they, they got a higher click-through rate and they also got a higher conversion rate and ended up being you know, the solution to make it so brands could work with a variety of content creators but also, you know, make sure that they get an ROI and they do it in a way where both them, the, the influencer and the audience are all happy. And if you think about it, that doesn't happen in advertising. Where else in advertising or marketing is the brand, the content creator or the creative and the audience all completely happy with the situation? And so being in this world that's very decentralized, where there's now millions of content creators the only way to navigate and scale working in this community is to follow this type of model. And so hearing you say that, that's, that's really interesting because it reminds me of the commercials that I grew up with where we all hate commercials. You're watching a show <laughs> and then they slap you in the face with a bunch of commercials that you don't want to watch. And, and so something that I think that's changed and it's very subtle, it's product placement where Shows like Stranger Things, they have Ego Waffles and different things where it's very natural. It, and so has that been happening for a while, the product placement? I feel like that's much more common now, or is that always? Yeah, been? yeah. So as the CEO of Ben Group, our company started out as merging two businesses together. One was Norm Marshall Associates, and the other one was a company that I founded called Plaid, Plaid Social Apps. Norm Marshall Associates has been around for 40 years. They're one of the reasons why James Bond stopped drinking just martinis and started drinking a Heineken or why um, Forrest Gump had Dr. Pepper. Or for example, Bumblebee in Transformers was supposed to be a Ford GT in the script, and we came in and we made it, so it ended up being a Camaro. And, and, and so product placement has been happening, and we've been involved with it for over 40 years. But today, where there's more content, there's also way more ad exhaustion than ever before, um, it, it is truly just exploding as an industry. And currently, our um, brands and our clients are in over 95% of the content um, across the SVOD platforms and streaming platforms. Wow. That's fascinating to me to see how much integration there is. Because as a viewer, you don't even, you don't even think about it. You don't really appreciate it. 
that's the point. And it's all about empowerment and it's about consensus because if you were watching a film or a TV show or a series on Netflix and you saw an off-brand cola, what would you think? This is fake. Yeah. Directors, producers, prop masters, they're all hungry to be able to use real products in their content because they want it to come across real and authentic. Well, maybe this is a question you could ask. I was watching a Post Malone music video the other day with my kids, and one of the t-shirts was blurred out. Is that because a product placement wasn't approved when they blur out content? And Yeah, he wore a brand that they couldn't get the rights for. And, okay. and, and, and this is a thing that needs to be something that brands and, 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 and different agencies need to level up on. You want to make sure, especially if it's aligned with your company, but you know, as content creators like a Post Malone or as producers that produce, you know, really successful shows or influencers as they, you know, wear your brand or organically use it, that's something that should be embraced and you should have, you know, a, a team in place that approves, you know, that, that, that sort of request. But yeah, that's exactly what happened is most likely it was either inappropriate <laughs> Or um, a brand did not approve um, them to license their image. So, Ricky, with young startups, there can be a lot of distractions and false starts, different opportunities. When was it that you you saw this North Star and you put all your eggs in the, into the inter- influencer basket? Yeah, so early on, as I mentioned, you know, it was hard to sell this in, especially at scale, to have brands truly invest in this area. And so... At the time, we had developers, you know, which was going to help us with platforms and, and to also do some development work, as well as we even had our own production team. Once we just saw this world just take off and just explode and become even more diverse and even more decentralized and that more platforms popped up and started providing video and, and making more opportunities for creators to work on their platforms. And, and so as things just exploded, we noticed this was here to stay and it was a big deal. And it wasn't just going to be the future of television, but it was going to be bigger than television. And we went in and we tackled this as aggressively as we could. And we always have had, you know, um, we've always tried as a company to be as data driven as possible and to, you know, always prioritize analytics. We put some math and science behind everything that we do. And so we always had predictive um, analytics and, and and models that would help us be much more successful um, that were very basic when it came to the technology and to, you know, the algorithms that we would, you know, leverage. And and later on, you know, as you know, we've evolved into an, an AI company. But back when we saw it to start to explode, we started growing year over year over 100%. And we started to grow with the industry and the diversification. And then it got to the point where, it got so overwhelming with all the opportunities out there where there was tens of millions of different content creators and different influencers out there, um, both in the States, here in the West. But then today there's over 200 um, video platforms and social platforms that are relevant in China alone. And so there's so much content and so many content creators out there that for humans, it's really impossible for us to understand and comprehend. And so we've had to invest in technology and AI in order to evolve as a business to stay relevant. And even though today our business is the biggest influencer company in the world from a revenue standpoint and also based on the amount of projects that we work on, 
we're just barely penetrating that blue ocean of content. There's literally millions and millions and millions of influencers um, that we don't work with because brands are not ready to, you know, you know, take their budgets and take this type of scale and this type of process to the next level. And do you think this is just the growing pain of ramping onto new media where some companies are nervous and scared and they're not familiar with it? Is this just part of the transition and the growing pain of considering these new technologies? 100%. Right now, all brands work with influencers, but it's more of a check off the list. Okay, we did an influencer campaign. Awesome. And that is also how it's working with product placement. Most brands realize that there needs to be some form of product placement, but they do it in a very simple, basic way. And it's a check off the list. But... Things are changing so fast and brands are just starting to realize now that they need to be, become much more sophisticated. And let me explain why. Ad exhaustion is at an all-time high. 86% of Americans are skipping advertisements. 47% of the globe have an ad blocker you know, technology that they're using. And I think that's actually very conservative when it comes to more developed countries like the US or like Japan. Um, and then, you know, if you look at Netflix, Netflix uh, on its own is bigger than the top four cable networks combined. That's just Netflix. And you know, Amazon Prime is also bigger than all of them combined. But then if you then turn over to YouTube, 88% of the views on YouTube come from influencers, from YouTubers. And that dwarfs all the streaming platforms from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu to all linear television and all of TV combined. All that combined is a small fraction of what YouTube is. And that's not including the crazy amounts of growth that's happening with TikTok, what's happening on Instagram, what's happening on Twitch.tv, and, and then all the different platforms that are starting to come to the West from the East. It's amazing to me to hear this transition because I, I remember when YouTube was bought by Google, people thought it was insane that they bought it for just over a billion dollars. And today... It's it's almost gone the other way. That that feels like a screaming deal. Oh yeah, I, I believe YouTube's close. It, it either is or it's close to being the first. I mean, the, the top search engine in the world. I think it's like Google still, and then then I think it's on YouTube. And and as I mentioned earlier, early on when we first started, I could count on my hands uh, on the amount of fingers that I have how many creators had over a million followers. And today, if you were to ask me how many influencers or creators have over a million followers, it's impossible for me to name them all off. And to be honest, even to name off those, I mean, all the creators that have over 10 million followers, that's still really difficult. That's amazing. So which streaming platform is the best? If I was an up and coming influencer or if I was in high school and you're trying to direct me, is it YouTube? Is it TikTok? What's your reaction to that question? Um, it, it all depends, and it depends what you're more passionate about and the type of content you want to create. TikTok is definitely on the rise, but if I were to suggest anything or a specific strategy for someone that wants to become a content creator or an influencer, I would keep tabs on live streaming. Figure out which platform is going to be best for you to live stream on because that is going to be the next wave of decentralization in my opinion. You have it working for the gaming industry on YouTube gaming, on, on Twitch.tv. Facebook gaming is also improving significantly, but it hasn't been accepted by the mainstream yet. It isn't something that everyone is using. Now, I do know that there are creators making a lot of money doing merch sales 
and, and driving, you know, revenues through live streaming, but they're few and far between. It's going to be something that becomes much more relevant in the near future. I think 2021 is going to be the year of the live streaming wars. You know, we always talk about the streaming wars between Netflix, Disney Plus, and, and all of those different streaming platforms. But I think the real war is going to be between live streaming. And we're going to see a lot of different platforms pop up. They're very specialized live streaming, but we already know Facebook's trying to figure it out. You know, Amazon is trying to figure it out. YouTube, TikTok. And one thing to note is China, all my predictions in China, like like seven, eight years ago, were completely false. Because back then, China was behind us when it came to this these types of platforms and this type of content. They're now 10 years ahead of us. And what's interesting, Alibaba spent over a billion dollars on just influencers alone in 2018. A big chunk of those influencers were on streaming platforms. Why was Alibaba doing this? Is because they were driving hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, well, probably billions and billions of dollars of sales as a result of working with these influencers. The big platforms over here in the West know it's coming and, and you see all of them pivoting and trying to figure out how they can be the winner when it comes to live streaming. And then it also now makes a lot more sense, you know, with Walmart, you know, partnering with TikTok, as well as companies and platforms like Shopify and other, you know, um, shopping apps. A lot of that's starting to happen, and it's because these companies are posturing. TikTok might have an advantage over a lot of the other platforms because the sister platform, Doing, actually has live streaming where individuals and influencers can sell their merch and their products on their own store um, through Douyin, and so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens on the, you know, on the, in the West. And if I were to start all over, or if I wanted to, you know, become a creator or an influencer, I would definitely prioritize live streaming. That's really interesting. So one of the questions I have: if it feels like this is really good to get access to the eyeballs and the buyers <laughs> and the customers in their natural feeds. But do you feel like there are some negative consequences for society that are coming from this? So one of the things I'm thinking about is live streaming protests. I know social media has been blamed for some of the polarization that we see going into the election. So maybe what are some what are some concerns you have as a parent when you think about where we're headed with social media? You know what? It's, it's one of those things that we're going to have to adapt and evolve with what's happening here. And. You know, there were a lot of concerns early on when it comes to creators and influencers that um, creators needed to disclose when they're being sponsored. And that oh, ended yeah. up, uh, you know, being a trend and that came on and ended up being something that happens permanently um, that was, you know, good for the industry. And audiences and, and, and consumers were actually happy when those influencers were very, um, much more bold about the collaborations that they are having with brands. I have a selfish interest here, Ricky. I, I love the founder stories. I love the ups and downs. What is a down day? So hearing you talk about Plaid, it just sounds like it was on the up and up and this is, it was all great and party to the end. What's a day or a moment when you think back on Plaid that was just a terrible, terrible day. Do you have an experience or something? You don't have to go into details or anything that would disclose too much. But do you have any experiences that stand out to you? I'd love love for you to kind of stew on that for a second. Yeah, I, I would say this. I think the problem 
in, in society and, and, and in business, when we always assume if you are a successful business and you're a part of a high growth business that had a really, let's say, a very successful exit or a very successful IPO, that, you know, we always just focus on like the good days and, you know, how successful it was and how amazing it was. But the truth is, the companies that are high growth businesses are the ones that probably have to deal with more stresses than other types of businesses. There's a lot of learning curves. Every phase of the business is going to have a different amount of curveballs and learning curves that you're going to have to deal with. And so for me, it was always when we need to innovate and figure out how we need to scale to the next level and how we could continue to grow as a business with how fast the industry was growing. Because we were part of an industry that just exploded. We've seen probably over five different bubbles that have taken place in this industry. And because we moved as quickly as we did and we knew when to pivot, we were luckily, very lucky and fortunate to grow whenever one of those bubbles bursted. And so I guess my response to that is that you're going to have more hard days than happy days if you're part of a high growth business. It just, it just comes with the, the, the nature of business that you're in. And especially if it's in an industry that's moving as quickly as entertainment has been moving in the last 10 years. And Ben is also in a high growth phase as well. So do you feel like that stress has just continued into Ben with the projects and growth that you guys are dealing with? How how do you manage the stress or how do you deal with it? Yeah, this last year, even though you know it has been very successful for us, it has had a lot of trials and a lot of challenges that we've never ever tried to predict or ever thought would ever happen to us. For example, on the product placement side of our business, where we work with over 90% of like the producers that are out there, that business, productions in Hollywood for streaming or TV or film, they all were shut down for several months. And that was really difficult to try to figure out how to deal with that when there's literally nothing that our company or our teams or even our technology could do to, to make up for it. And we've been very lucky and fortunate and blessed to be able to bounce back since and be able to break records, you know, since, you know, this has all happened and the, the production community and the film community have all been just amazing. And they've been rock stars on getting back on track to doing what they were doing. A lot of it was probably because there was a lot of empowerment because more people were watching more content as well. There's never been a bigger demand for content, but then, you know, on the influencer side of the business, uh, we had our own issues as well. There were some of our really big multi-million dollar budgets that ended up getting pushed back to 2021 or gotten frozen. And we had to figure out other ways to pivot. But the truth is, is that you, whatever decisions you make and whenever you're having to deal with different curveballs or trials, you have to keep moving forward and analyze as much as you can, data gather as quickly as possible so you can, you know, bounce back and, you know, go into the trials aggressively so, you know, you can make it to the other side. And so when we found out that everything was being quarantined and, and this was going to affect a lot of our clients and a lot of different businesses out there, a lot of companies tend to stop, step back and like watch what is going on around them. What we did as a business is we felt like, okay, with all this uncertainty, we need to move forward and figure out how we can pivot so we can adapt to the situation that we're in. And so what we ended up doing is more than doubling our sales organization. We decided to go into this uncertainty and, and talk to as many companies and many brands as possible to data gather to see 
what brands were thinking. Hindsight, we look very intelligent <laughs> because what happened is we were one of the only companies in our industry that was doing this. And we ended up growing our bookings, our new business, um, 215% and our new revenue over 100% in a year where there was a recession and a lot of uncertainty. And, and so it's really about just going with the punches, but also being very self-aware and trying to analyze what's going on, what can we learn from it, and then what risks should we take in this time, uh, in, in, in this type of situation. Something else that we did as a business is we ended up doing one of the, one of the largest transactions in our industry this last year with, with acquiring um, TubeBuddy. It, it, it was a year where there's a lot of uncertainty, there are a lot of curveballs, but you know we've been very fortunate to be able to have the resources to pivot, to evolve, to adapt, and, and to make sure that you know we can do everything we can to make it so we don't have to furlough the, the executives and employees that we have. And did you feel like you had the support to expand the sales team? Because that feels like a very aggressive move, and it feels counterintuitive because everyone I, I heard about companies essentially icing or axing their marketing groups and i'm sure you saw budgets getting cut so mm-hmm. that strategy it feels smart now but in march and april that would have felt cra- a, a little crazy absolutely but we were also very data driven we saw that there was a huge peak when it came to performance type brands or brands that needed to have real attribution in order to work in an advertiser or in the space. And so we we had a new model for sales that we created that um, had a lot of promise to it. Once we realized in March that the momentum continued to build, even though all this uncertainty was happening, we decided like, look, this is working. Let's put get let's let's put resources behind it. Let's let's put gas in the fire and let's see what we can do with this. And worst case scenario, we'll da- data gather of what what's going on out there and figure out you know what we needed to pivot later. And you know we were very fortunate that you know we were able to do things at the right time at the right place and find the right opportunities. I love the Ben story because it's one of the it's one of the hero stories when it comes to applied AI because. One of the metrics that you may not see all the time, but we talk about a lot is 70, 80% of AI projects fail. They don't deliver value. They don't pay for the effort where I feel like the Ben story, you guys have really embraced it where you you do see it. Um, I guess the last thing I'll throw in there, do you see AI as a research effort or as a primary driver for your business? We're very fortunate being a company with over 250 employees where we're still a pretty small business where we have both a research side of AI as well as an applied side to AI. You need both. We have no company to follow. This has never happened with content before where it's this decentralized. I mean, it truly is like the era of the artist where there's more artists today self-sustaining and making money with creating art than has ever happened in the history of this planet. But as a result of that, of, of all of this, it's become very complex and, and, and complicated in order to help brands navigate all the art that is out there. And so, because it's literally impossible for the human mind to comprehend. And so with AI, we've used leveraged AI to be able to monitor all this decentralized content that is out there. And then based on all of the, the, the campaigns and all the projects that we have done with all the data that we had around KPIs and conversions, we were able to take our historical data and then figure out which opportunities and which content creators and which influencers a certain brand should prioritize 
based on what they needed to do. And and one thing to, to mention, the reason why there was such a perfect marriage with AI and with our business was because there's more data out there than ever before, Com- at least compared to any other form of marketing or advertising. There's literally tens of millions of videos being uploaded every day. And so when you create technology where you don't just look at the structured data, but you also look at the unstructured data, meaning the data that you don't fit into a spreadsheet, you know this. I mean, you've taught me so much about AI, Ben, and you've been an advisor as well, which we, we're so thankful for all the involvement you've had, especially early on um, as we started doing this. But as you know, structured data, it's the data that you can fit into a spreadsheet. It's the views, it's the clicks, it's the, it's the data that you can get publicly from platforms. Well, the issue in entertainment, that that form of data is literally only 20 to 10, I mean, 10 to 20 percent of the data that is out there. However, 99 percent of brands are only looking at that data, which means they're only seeing a percentage of the overall picture. Being able to you know, work with deep learning neural networks where we could make sense out of all the unstructured data, where we could like use computer vision, NLP, to look at the videos, to look at the images, to be able to look at the large groups of texts. That is where we were able to really push the needle forward with our predictions to be a lot more accurate, but specifically to be able to predict not just views, but to be able to predict clicks and to be able to predict conversions. And, you know, on a monthly basis, you know, we are generating millions of dollars for our clients being able to predict how much they're going to make in revenue on a monthly basis. And this is something that no one's really talking about, but like it's groundbreaking because this has not really ever happened in any other form of advertising or marketing. And it's because the data wasn't there. Yeah, the so many things to unpack in your answer. So yeah. the attribution is mind-blowing if you think of the old TV commercials, because how did they ever yeah. know if the Eggo Waffle commercial worked? They'd have to call in and do surveys where now you can track it all the way through the sales pipeline and all the way to value, which is fascinating. Um, well, there's so much data that we've been able to leverage. You know, being that we were one of the first companies to start an influencer business and one of the first companies to do product placement as well, uh, on the influencer side, you know, we had, you know, thousands and thousands of videos and integrations and collaborations that we've done with influencers where we knew the views, we knew the clicks, we knew the installs or the sales that we were able to generate. Let's say if a, a big brand, um, give me a big brand to use. Uh, Toyota. Let's say Toyota, you know, were to have to, to be able to leverage AI doing a commercial or let's say even a, an infomercial. Well, how many commercials a year do you think Toyota does for you know one brand? Let's say they did 10. Okay, so that's 10 videos. The next question is, do they attribute legitimate sales with those with those 10 commercials? Yay or nay, you know, it, it's possible, you know, you know, both ways. Well, let's say they want to start, you know, create a, a deep learning neural network or an algorithm or a model to be able to learn from those 10 videos to then, you know, make a prediction for 2021 to make 10 more commercials. Well, 10 commercials and 10 videos is not enough. Even if they were to keep those commercials for the last 10 years, it'd be arguable to say that that's still not enough data. We're working with influencers or working with content is so different is that there's so much more of it. And, and so the fact that we've been able to work with tens of thousands of different you know, videos and, and, and different creators 
it's made it so we've been to been able to look at enough data, both structured and unstructured data, to be able to become much more accurate in making um, sales predictions or other KPI predictions. And one of the risks with this new economy is fraud, right? So, like, I, I bought all of my LinkedIn followers, and and other people do that too. Wait, wait, how do you, how buy, do you catch you, fraud? Wait, wait, wait! You pay for your followers? No, I didn't. I just, I just shitting <laughs> you. <laughs> well, no. So well, no, this is what's funny. <laughs> uh, well, it's not funny. It's actually something that we we should all be aware of. This year, one point three billion dollars will be wasted on fraudulent activity on fake followers. Really? So people just buying Instagram followers will mislead brands? Yeah, yeah. And so out of all these different creators, you know, a lot of them look healthy. They have millions of followers. And some of them even have a lot of engagement. But the truth is, you know, a, a lot of this engagement can be fake. And a lot of those followers, you know, can be fake or they can be bots. And and so, you know, utilizing AI to be able to look at, you know, thousands of different influencers and, and to be able to see, okay, this creator has a really high bot percentage when it comes to the engagement. Or, you know, this creator over here, you know, has a very low bot percentage. You should prioritize them and make sure that you have budget for that creator specifically. There's actually an example where there was a creator that got a lot of negative press um, over a year ago where she did a collaboration with a, a clothing company, a partnership with a t-shirt. And she had over 2 million followers and she was only able to sell 30 t-shirts. <laughs> and there's all this negative press, all this controversy, and all these you know different reporters were out there saying, influencer marketing is dead. You should not work with influencers. Well, that was generalizing based, I mean, uh, uh, millions and millions of influencers based off of one specific project. Yeah. If that brand would have come to us, we could have immediately told them that 25% of her engagement is fake. We could have also told them that her um, um, views on Instagram stories are very low. And having that many followers and having that much um, bot activity as well as that low of engagement is a sign that you should not put all of your eggs in one basket and that you should work with other creators that are out there. And, and I think that's something that you guys really focus on. I think being naive in the influencer space, a lot of times we focus on the, the hero influencer. If I can just have one influencer do something, that'll be great. Where you guys, you, you de-risk it by using a lot of influencers, right? Well, it, it's one of those things where are you wanting to do a celebrity activation for a, and have like a spokesperson? Because there's, there is always going to be a place for that. Or do you want to drive real impact and have the impact of a Super Bowl ad every day? The inventory is out there. The amount of influencers are out there. And you want to make sure when you are trying to, let's say, create a sales channel or you know create a lot of impact – you want to make sure that you have a very diversified approach that's very data-driven and that you're looking at all the data and they're using technology that can help you be much more calculated and, and much more accurate. In the AI systems we build, they're only as good as the data that we have access to. Is that mm -hmm. one of the motivations with the, the TubeBuddy acquisition to increase the access to data and information that you guys have to work with? Well, the reason why we acquired TubeBuddy is something that gets our company out of bed in the morning is that we have a mission. And our mission is to empower content creators to create more content, for artists to create more art. Art is really important. If you look at history, how have we documented history? Just in books and stuff, books and yeah, paintings. Yeah, there's books, which is, you know, yeah. is a form of art, paintings, 
Mm, um, stories. Poems, yeah. You know, art has been the medium that has truly helped preserve history. It's also helped preserve culture. And we feel the more content creators that we can empower to do better, you know, the more we can positively impact how this era of artists and where we are today, we, we believe it's going to positively impact humanity for centuries to come. And, and art is always something that has also been really good and therapeutic when it comes to escape, especially this last year when there's been such a hunger for normalcy. Art is so important. And we think it's really important for humanity. And so we acquired TubeBuddy because we've always empowered artists through brand collaboration to be able to do things that they've always wanted to do and to also be able to build their businesses and have more revenue. And this is something that's you know applicable to both Hollywood as well as what we've done with Influencer. TubeBuddy being the biggest community of influencers and creators outside of the platforms, you know, it's been built to help manage their, their, their YouTube channels and help them be much more data-driven and to optimize and to grow their following, which in return grows their revenue. And so we think with this world of decentralization, even though TubeBuddy has worked with over 6 million different influencers or different creators, we think that's the tip of the iceberg because we know there's tens of millions of them across the globe. And, and so our goal is to take you know, TubeBuddy, leverage our data, leverage our technology to better even empower influencers to use what features that TubeBuddy already has that are very successful, but with AI and with deep learning, enhance those features to be even more accurate and even more successful. And so are there areas where what we do with brands and what we do with TubeBuddy can collaborate? Maybe in the future, if that's what the community wants. But our goal is not to change anything and to prioritize and making it so we can, in a different way, empower artists to create. And one thing that we get really excited about is being that we're able to predict sales for a lot of our brands. A lot of these influencers are making it a priority to sell product or merchandise. And so I see one day, um, if the community is interested in this, and we'll be very data-driven and insightful on what on, on things that we add to the platform, I see a day where influencers can have their own customized algorithm on how to better predict sales on their merch stores. Oh, could, to get insight into what behavior is driving their audience? Yeah, it's driving every their influ- audience. And then what can they learn both with the content as well as you know with their products on, on how they can level up and optimize what they're doing. And what we do for brands is we create an optimization engine so every month that they're working with us, they become more and more effective with having a feedback loop Month after month, an algorithm for a, you know, a brand that we work with gets smarter and smarter. And so we think we can take similar tactics and, 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 and leverage this type of technology so creators can also make more money. And, and there's a lot of creators out there today that are making literally hundreds of millions of dollars through selling clothes or merchandise. Describe an influencer 10 years from now with AI, with where things are going. If you had to go that far in the future... What's a day in the life of an influencer with these types of technologies coming online? You know what? There's a reason why we're being very influencer and creator centric. Because they are going to be what's valuable to platforms. And a lot of these creators are probably going to have their own platforms. They'll still leverage other platforms 10 years from now, but there's a good chance that they'll have their own platforms where they can own their audience, own their data, and do things you know, that is a positive impact 
um, to their communities. I, I think that's something that's very possible. And, and that's why we set up our business the way we have. We help brands work with creators, but we make sure that they reach a consensus. We, we want to make sure the brands are empowered, but also the creators are empowered. And in a, in a world of friction, it's nice to have a culture and an approach of consensus where we're all aligned and are all on the same page. And, and so today, you know, I mentioned that we work with a lot of different um, producers and, and, and content across all the streaming platforms. Guess how many of those deals we've done through those streaming platforms? Zero. These deals and these collaborations are happening directly through the creators. And so we're going to see the creators get more influence and more empowerment over time. Good signs of this are, you know, the creators like Ninja or other, you know, content and influencers out there where the platforms are um, bidding against each other to make sure that that influencer can be exclusive to their platform. Well, we've also saw this with Dave Chappelle and Netflix. Dave Chappelle was very frustrated that Viacom and CBS sold the rights. Netflix bought the rights to stream on the Dave Chappelle show from Viacom and CBS. And who knows how much money went into being able to have the rights to stream that content. Well, Dave Chappelle didn't feel like the agreement he had with Viacom and CBS was that good of an agreement. And even though he agreed to something, later on in his life, he realized that it wasn't something that he felt like was fair to him. And he obviously wasn't making money here. So Dave Chappelle went to Netflix and said, hey, I understand they have a deal you know, with the Dave Chappelle show. I understand that you, you know, did this with Viacom CBS. You don't have to do anything, but I ask you that you take it down because it hurts my feelings. What happened? Netflix took it down. Why? Well, they probably have data showing that Dave Chappelle doing stamp comedy is one of the top performing um, um, forms of content that they have. That's probably a piece of it. Also, if they make Dave Chappelle more empowered and they build that relationship with Dave Chappelle, maybe they can create their own Dave Chappelle show or something similar to that in the future. It also says something very boldly and positively to the creator community and all the influencers, celebrities, content creators, and producers that are out there that Netflix is behind the content creator. This is, I think, just the tip of the iceberg that shows that someone that might be seen as a stand-up comic or an actor, it shows that they now have more clout than ever before. I think this is a part of the decentralization that we're seeing. And all these platforms are going to realize it's the content creators that make them valuable. And they're going to cater to the content creators. And some of these content creators are going to break through that and even create their own platforms that are successful. Do you think AI will get to the point that we'll have AI influencers like deep fakes or Instagram influencers where it's just algorithms entertaining us? Are we ever going to get there? You know, I'd love to hear, I mean, you're, you're a futurist and, and I'd like to hear your thinking from your questions. It shows how futuristic you are and you have a lot of futuristic thinking. To answer you, there's influencers out there today that claim that they're AI influencers. I don't know how real that is. I think they're just animated <laughs> and... Oh, like- and the, the word AI is kind of a stretch, but I do believe it can get to the point where AI is going to be able to edit, which it's doing that in, in, in some form or another in, in certain platforms and, and different applications. But I do think it's possible 
that there, there'll be a point where there are creators that create content and will be able to use bio data to be able to see how people respond to that content, both when it comes to comments, but you know, visually see if they're laughing, or if they're crying, or if they're excited, or if they're not. And there's ways of doing this with eye tracking technology. You can also do this with brainwave technology. I think it could get to the point if people authorize it because they want something very personified to them that um, AI can both create, I mean, there, there can be creators that are built off of AI and there's a feedback loop that makes it so they continue to grow and they continue to progress. But I think it's also possible to do it in a way where people can have perso personalized experiences based on how they're reacting to the content. You know, everyone thought it was really cool. What was the name of that show? The, the film um, that Black Mirror did. Oh, is there a full-length movie? I'm just familiar yeah, with the I Black Mirror the series. So it's a choose-your-own-adventure show. Oh, and, wait, no. Um, they, they die in that show, right? Like, the, the adventures are messed up, right? Well, yeah, there's different adventures you can go, and I am not going to spill the beans of what happened in the show. But there's even a time where they, they let you choose which cereal box they should eat from. Uh -huh. Well, I think it'd be amazing if we can get to the point, and, and this is leveling up technology at a whole other level. Uh, maybe AGI needs to be in, in existence here because you're the expert way more than I am. I, I'm not an expert. I'm a, I'm a big picture visionary thinking kind of person. I'm not as technical as you are. But what if you could watch a program and then based on how you're reacting to the program, it changes the content based on how you're reacting. So if you're laughing, it takes you down a certain path. If you're frowning, it takes you to a different path. If you seem sad, it does something else to maybe takes you to a path that's more positive that cheers you up. Do you think content can get to that point where, where it can be more personified in real time? Uh, I think it definitely can. We're seeing some evidence with uh, the GANs, the generated adversarial networks. People see the fake faces and they think that's cool, but they also do fake scenes, fake animations. They look really crude. Like someone's golfing, kind of, or they're swimming, mm -hmm. kind of. But you, you can probably, to pull on that thread, I always like making things really dark. So to take that to a really dark place, you can imagine in the future, you would be entertained like with a horror movie. And if you're not scared, you're going to be. And that feedback is coming. <laughs> that feedback would be coming from your, you know, your cradle cap or your skin sensitivity, where your phobias are going to be different than mine. And, and that actually gets really scary because we don't understand what happens when you cross those thresholds. AI could actually optimize to the point where you don't come back. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> amazing for no, good I, or bad. I, that, that's a great way to look at it. Well, what do you think about the question of AI creating influencers? I mean, having AI create an influencer and then have a feedback loop based on how people react to the influencer. That's something I think, might happen sooner than later. Yeah, I think we're looking at, if it's not this year, during the next three to five years for sure, one of the LinkedIn top voices will be in AI. And it'll be a big embarrassment for LinkedIn. <laughs> well, you think it's because it's going to have an advantage of aggregating data and information and to deliver in a way that humans just can't compete with? Yeah, because one of the issues that influencers run into, I'm not familiar with all the platforms that you are, but on LinkedIn, they can't post enough. So if I could post 20 times per day, that'd be better than three, but I can't do that and come up with creative content. So AI, it it has a huge advantage because it can steal. It can see what's working, it can aggregate, and it can steal from thousands of text-based influencers 
what's the feel good content they're writing and it can test it through smaller AI. So you can imagine if I had one fake LinkedIn account, I could have 50 smaller ones where it's mm. testing. And then when it finds the good stuff, it pushes it through the main channel. This is engaging. Let's push yeah. it through here. Yeah. That makes complete sense. To be, to be honest, when we talk to, I mean, you know, when we talk about our bot detection and us being able to see, you know, what percentage of views or engagements are fake when we're working with influencers, we kind of position as like um, a Terminator war, like, you know, a cyborg war between us and all the bots that are out there because we're noticing that more and more bots are acting more and more like humans. Yeah. And, and, and that's going to so be a cat and mouse game. They're going to get better and better and better. And then yeah. you guys so have to get have better to and better. Investing and explaining to brands that they need to take this seriously because it's very sophisticated. But I believe on a couple of the video platforms that are out there, especially around children's content, this is happening. There's companies that I think are kind of sketchy. There's some in Russia and some in Asia where they're repurposing children's content that's performing really well on YouTube and making millions and millions of dollars off of this content. So maybe you might see something with a, a famous animated character in it, but you can kind of see like this theme that everything's pink. Like they change it just a little bit and then they repurpose it. And so there must be a feedback loop happening. And I think platforms will know this, but there must be some type of war that is going on where platforms are trying to point out this content and like and, and eliminate it because if you think about it especially when you can see it with children's content it's something that you know could be dangerous potentially oh yeah definitely i've i've heard horror stories i haven't experienced it where you have your kids watching something and something gets embedded in that content that is not age appropriate i have so there's a random song that i didn't understand so my kids are bilingual so, you know, they're, they're fluent in both English and Spanish. And my daughter one day was just watching this cartoon that just looked bizarre. But it, it had this weird song, and I didn't understand any of the words in the song. And it was like this, like, this cartoon with like a, like a skeleton face dancing around all funny. And I was like, why in the world is my daughter watching this stuff? Well, you know, you be you. Like, you know, do what you want. I didn't hear my wife, you know you know, in the other room screaming out, why in the world is she listening to that song? And then she storms in and, and she looks at, there's a cartoon playing. And obviously I didn't understand, but it was a bunch of vulgar language in Spanish. Oh, really? Yeah. On, on and so show. they've taken a lot of initiatives to clean this out on a variety of the platforms that are out there. I'm obviously not naming any of them, but it, it's going to be something that could potentially be an issue later on as well at a whole other magnitude. You're listening to More Intelligent Tomorrow, an artificial intelligence podcast brought to you in high fidelity by Data Robot. So focusing on the kids and, you know, I, I know you have kids and I do as well. With you really embracing AI and seeing where it's going in the future with your own company, what, what does the future look like for them? Do you think do you think your kids have to understand AI and apply it within their own domains? Is this going to be a required subject that they have to comprehend? I think so. You know, there's a lot of um, fear mongering and fear tactics out there criticizing AI and all the danger that's going to come from AI. And I think a lot of people, when they hear AI, they actually direct immediately go to the conclusion that it's AGI, 
you know, artificial general intelligence, which, which it's not. But um, people have, you know, these post-apocalyptic scenarios that are going to happen and that everyone's going to be hungry and they're not going to exist because of the AI, the AI is taking over. I, I'm personally an optimist. I, I don't like my kids just, you know, binge watching all day long on, on iPad, on the iPad or on TV or, or anything like that. But I do think it's really important that the fact that they can navigate the iPad better than me, that's probably going to help them later on as technology advances. And so it's really just, you know, about balance and analyzing the pros and cons and, and in a way doing like a utilitarian approach of just making sure, you know, that there's moderation in all things. But personally, I am applying my daughter to a school right now that specializes in teaching children AI. I think it's going to happen. I'm, I'm obviously kind of a helicopter parent. You know, after my kids, you know, progress knowing both Spanish and English, I want them to learn Mandarin. And then after that, I want them, you know, to, to really learn how to do data science and how to go in that direction because I truly do believe it's the future. And I wish I you know, could go back in time and become even a, a more technical expert when it comes to AI, machine learning, and, and of course, deep learning. That's really interesting. Do you think we'll ever get to AGI in the future when you and I are alive? Or is, it, is that an impossible goal? This is the thing. And this is where, you know, you're going to have a huge advantage with me in this conversation. <laughs> I try to be very optimistic. Because whenever people say AGI, they're going to say the AI is going to gather its own data and teach itself and it's going to you know, dominate everything. And I hope we progress as humans as we're dealing with this new technology and you know, this new math that, that they're working with, that we can have something that's similar to AGI, but give it boundaries. So I think AGI you know, will happen and that it is going to be possible. I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of things that need to happen, but I'm hopeful that you can have something like AGI be applied to something like my industry where it can focus in certain areas and data gather and self-improve focus in those areas rather than everything. Because everyone keeps talking about how there's going to be a computer that learns like a human, but then has the knowledge of billions and billions of humans and can start, you know, having power with technology with an, uh, an updated infrastructure to really do things that can be very harmful to the human population. I hope if there is AGI that we can figure out how to limit it to specific categories. What do you think? Cause I know you do a lot of research and you're very inventive and I wouldn't be surprised if you're already trying to create AGI in your room. Well, I, I definitely have, a geek passion focus on that topic. I think it helps us understand ourselves. But the thing I'm the most excited about in the future is, do you think we'll have AI that's capable of not making us 40 minutes late to a podcast? Stuff like that. <laughs> I had to get that in there. Just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, maybe we can look at the cyborg theory and I think that'd help you, Ben, to make it on time. The more attached you become with the technology, hopefully in the future, you know, you'll never be late again. The, the thing that <laughs> I think is so interesting with AI is there's this journey we have in life where we try to understand ourselves and humans, like what makes us happy, what fulfills us, what what is life about? And I think what we're finding with AI is it actually helps us answer some of those questions. Mm -hmm. um, so AI will help us create art faster, content faster, and it will 
you know, we're doing a lot of research on the mind and the brain, which is a very fascinating organ that we know very little about. So I think it's kind of wrapped in, it's kind of wrapped all together. It seems like specifically when it comes to like unstructured data and having, you know, technology that helps us monitor it and understand it and interpret it, you get more of a sense of why certain things are happening rather than what's happening. And I personally believe that AI and technology is going to get much better at understanding what our gut feels. You know, I think we sometimes are very intuitive and we subconsciously are, are seeing data that's helping us make proper decisions. And, and I, I think there's a, a good chance that you know, AI is going to replicate that. So stuff that we call as I have a good feeling about this or it's a gut feel or you know, I have a really strong feeling that we need to go in this direction. I, I think AI is going to be able to replicate that and we're going to be able to understand even more what inspires us and what drives us. And, and so I'm, I'm 100% there with you. It's, it's been amazing to be able to work closely with our head of research where he shows me models that he's working on where he's inspired you know, to um, look on how a cat's brain works from when the cat sees something, processes something, and then learns and has action. We're creating these virtual brains and it's amazing because what we're creating as humans is going to be able to accomplish way more than any of us can do individually. Ricky, I haven't had time to piss you off yet. We got to, we got to hurry and get some zinger questions in. Oh, so Ricky, you guys work with a lot of celebrities, a lot of influencers. Have you had to deal with major egos where people's followers are growing and they want to renegotiate contracts? Have you had to deal with employees that are starstruck? Have you been starstruck interview, like interacting with some of the celebrities you work with? You know what? <laughs> I've only been starstruck once because it was caught by surprise. And it was it was meeting the bassist from Nirvana at a, at a political fundraiser. And basically, him and I became, you know, we we're having a lot of back and forth. Um, I had no idea who he was. I kept calling him Christ. And he had to keep, you know, correcting me that his name was Christ. And, and then when I realized that, you know, he's the base of Nirvana, that was probably the only time where I met, you know, with someone that I knew that, you know, is a celebrity where I was just like, boom, it just hit me in the heart and my heart melted. That I was talking to someone that I listened to as a child. It was like Nirvana was the time that I rebelled against my parents and went on my own and, of discovering new music. But with that said, in our company, we work with a lot of celebrities. We work with a lot of influencers. And we're very good on the types of people that we hire and to make sure that they're very professional. If you're at an event, you do not do a selfie with a creator, influencer, or, or celebrity. You just don't do that. Uh, we need to be empowering. We need them to feel natural. We need them to feel comfortable with us. And you know, so our teams that do interact with influencers, their job is to become their best friend. And you don't do that by meeting them and asking them to do a selfie. Yeah. And, and when it comes to like systems and processes, there are influencers and celebrities where the fame does get to their head, or maybe they have some form of God complex. We have a lot of really good systems and processes in place to help us navigate those types of egos and those types of personalities. And as soon as anyone initially, as we're working with them, expresses any lack of interest to do something or any form of like resistance um, that we don't find um, empowering, we immediately just tell them, look, this project is probably not the best for you. We'll make sure that we bring an opportunity that you're a lot more passionate about. 
because there's so many content creators out there and every band, it doesn't, know, it doesn't matter who you're targeting, whether you're targeting moms or African-American families or you're targeting um, Gen Z or millennials, there are so many creators that you can work with to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And you should make sure that you're using the consensus triangle, but you also should be making sure that you're being data-driven on who you're prioritizing. And last but not least, they need to be passionate about the brand or it's not going to be authentic. It's going to be forced. And those are the types of situations, if you're not very careful, can end in a lawsuit. And is that something you guys help with to make sure it's a two-way street, that the brand is interested in the influencer and they're interested in the brand? Is there some matchmaking yeah, so that goes on? We have very strong connectivity with all the top creators, and we have processes in place to make good relationships with micro or nano influencers. Two, we're very data-driven with the data and the technology to be a lot more scientific in who we work with. So we have the relationships, we have the data and the technology. Three, not a lot of people talk about, but is extremely important in order to really leverage the AI and the relationships and to have a very successful campaign, you need to have data-driven systems and processes. It's not like you just turn on the AI and it starts working for you. It's not like you just text someone and say, hey, let's collaborate. You need to have systems and processes when it both comes to relationships, when it comes to scale, when it comes to working with technology like AI in order to make something come together. And so you need those three things, relationships, technology, data, as well as data-driven systems and processes in order to make this happen. Because the truth is, there's enough content out there, as I mentioned before, to have a Super Bowl ad every single day. And even though there's $10 billion um, that's a part of this industry that's being spent on influencers every year, there's still a huge blue ocean of influencers that are not getting a lot of that money. And, and so this is something that's really exciting. And actually something to bring up, I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about economics or, you know, the industry in, in general, when it comes to marketing and media, guess how much is being spent in 2020 uh, on media? $695 billion. I, I've already mentioned that influencers are much bigger than all of traditional media, TV, and all the streaming platforms combined. Influencer is only getting $10 billion in 2020. And so there's going to be a huge shift of resources and of budgets. And we are doing everything we can to build an infrastructure to automate all that we possibly can when it comes to planning and predicting and when it comes to reporting. So when those budgets shift, you know, we'll be the biggest net to catch all of the fish and also have a flawless experience for brands to have technology, the right relationships, the right systems and processes so they can you know, navigate in a way where there's a lot of quality control when, when doing something so different that is so massive that they've never, ever experienced with marketing before. With that type of shift, I think a, a lot of strategic people talk about a land grab. Like how, how do you get as much as possible to get ready for it, whether it's the influencer connections or the attention? So we plan on being the company that leads the consolidation. But the truth is, with how decentralized everything is right now, none of the organizations, none of the brands out there are even ready for it to even keep up with it. And so there's just going to be so much opportunity 
for for any company that is you know making moves in this space. So one of the questions I want to make sure I ask you. Working with data scientists from an executive perspective can be very frustrating sometimes because some of them can lack urgency. They can struggle with communication. What are some tips or advice you can give to other CEOs where you guys are managing academic type researchers effectively? How, how do you deal with communication and urgency that get shit done? This isn't your PhD. How do you deal with that? Find a leader who's a data scientist that is a lion where they have ambition and vision and, and want to make sure whatever they do is very significant and will make an impact in the world, both in the industry of AI, but also in the planet. And so we've been very lucky to be able to hire the right people initially, which Ben, you helped advise us on hiring our, you know, our teams in the past. And so we've been very fortunate to hire the right leaders and the right teams. So, we can be a best-in-class cutting-edge AI team or have best-in-class cutting-edge AI team and data science team so we can continue to improve and optimize and grow as we see breakthroughs and innovations as a business. And so you need to find someone that has vision and someone that is very data-driven and, of course, a lot of ambition. And uh, we have a, an individual named Tyler that is our head of AI, and he's, he's that individual. And when you get that type of person, they're always going to be looking around for different data scientists and, and different data engineers that can help us elevate as a business. And so he literally looks for people that are better than him in certain areas so we can have a very strong um, data science team. And this has been a game changer for us. So this is actually a common strategy that we see with successful companies where they'll hire a chief data officer. Or they're essentially hiring that person to be held accountable when it comes to communication, KPIs, OKRs, and value, and then they take care of everything underneath them. And so we, we've seen companies start with a siloed approach, and that ends up failing because they don't have that key contributor. So that, that does resonate with me hearing that. Our, our goal, because... We've been overwhelmed with all the movement and growth in our industry. And our goal was to make sure that AI was touching every side of the business from a revenue perspective, as well as from an operations perspective. Because even though we've had breakthroughs and we've had very successful case studies with AI and with when it comes to brands and when it comes to influencers and, and when it comes to um, entertainment and TV, it's been extremely important that it's not just something that helps others outside of the organization, but it's something that makes our own org more efficient and more effective and more streamlined. And so, you know, we use the technology that create to not just help our partners, but to help us. And that has been a huge game changer. And it's made it so, you know, we literally have evolved into being an AI company um, because it is the pulse of the business. Yeah. I love how much you guys have embraced it. So this podcast is called The More Intelligent Tomorrow. We we like to think about the future. What are you the most excited about in the future? And it doesn't have to be related to your company or the work and stuff you're doing. Just selfishly, what are you as an individual excited about in the future? In our industry, I'm really excited to see what happens with live streaming because I think that is going to be the next era of decentralization. I'm excited to see all the other platforms that are planning on coming in and competing. 
and seeing how well they do. But I'm really excited to get to the point where the content creator truly is the master of their own destiny, uh, where influencers and producers and filmmakers can truly decide what they want to do and make it happen and have no form of barrier um, in their way. And I, I think those days are coming and I think they're coming really quickly. And just now content creators are realizing the influence that they have. I mean, there, there, there are influencers that launch products and make a hundred million dollars within the 24 hours. I mean, that has happened. That, that happened with Jeffree Star and Shane Dawson. And so this is still very new. And it's been exciting to see that actors are now realizing that they maybe need to become their own production companies. They need to become their own studios. And I think we're going to be seeing not just a decentralization of content, but there's going to be a huge decentralization of platforms. And it's going to be because it's going to show how different we all are and, and how you know we're going to support whatever communicates best to us. And so I think that's something that's going to be really, really exciting. I'm also excited to see if elements of the cyborg theory takes place where you see things like IntelliLink and, and other you know, inventions that are starting to happen to see you know, where that goes. Is it possible for us to be way more productive with technology attached to our brain? I don't know, but I'm excited to see what happens. We'll watch, more, we'll watch more cat videos with our neural links. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while, while we yeah. drool and look at ads. Um, well, Ricky, we've this has been a great episode, and I really appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for being on our podcast, man. Thank you so much, and thanks for you know being easy on me. You sent me a couple of texts that made me nervous before this <laughs> podcast, and I, I appreciate you being nice and professional because you know as friends that we've we've known each other for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you know I, I consider you a really good friend, I, I usually don't trust you in a vulnerable situation. Well, I knew if I made you cry, you'd give me a wedgie, <laughs> or you, you'd be, you'd bully me somehow if I saw you in person. So you you intimidated me. <laughs> No, I think I think you're the bully. But anyways, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of More Intelligent Tomorrow. Feel free to subscribe to continue discovering the heroes of tomorrow, illuminating the path forward today. Visit us at datarobot.com slash podcast to learn more.